are listening to Table for Two with Naomi Nachman on the Nachum Siegel Network. Our show is sponsored this month by AHC Appliances in AHC Appliances in Cedarhurst. It was a little bit of a tongue twister for me on this Friday morning. Good Erev Shabbos, everybody. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Naomi Nachman. I'm about all the food, all the time. I love food. I love to shop for it, cook for it, eat at restaurants, anything food related. I'm a kosher personal chef. My business is called the Aussie Gourmet. I give cooking classes. I cater for people for Shabbat, for Yom Tov, Pesach, Thanksgivingka, hint, hint. Uh, small parties, anytime you don't feel like cooking, I am your gal. I hope that you will tune in every week and hear about my exciting cooking adventures, kosher food traveling, and sharing of great food ideas and recipes. But I also want to hear about your experiences too. So please email me at uh, naomi at nachumsegel.com. You can join my fan page uh, on Facebook, The Aussie Gourmet. Aussie is A-U-S-S-I-E. You can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, or you can join my letter, my newsletter on my face on my website, theaussiegourmet.com. So uh, please share your, exper- your food experiences too, um, and let it be a two-way conversation. So I say if you eat it, share it with me. Um, I want to give a big happy birthday shout out to my friend Devorah Torb from Sydney, Australia, even though I know it's Shabbos already. But today is November 1st and you always taught us growing up that no, no, today is November 1st and I did not forget your birthday because you drilled it into our heads. Now that you are 40 today, the 1st of November you must remember. So a big, big happy birthday to you. Bis 120 as we say growing up in Australia. So great food news. I don't even know where to start. I've got a giveaway. Esty Kafra, who just wrote the most amazing cookbook. She was a guest on our show about two or three weeks ago, uh, uh, Cooking Inspired. She has a beautiful new cookbook, and she's going to be giving one away to one of our listeners. So if you email me at naomi at nachamsegel.com, we're going to make a raffle and pull one of your names out of a hat. And you will be getting Esty Kafra's brand new gorgeous cookbook. So please, if you want this cookbook for free from Esty Kafra, we would love our listeners. We've had some great feedback about what people are enjoying to read. So I hope that you will give us some great feedback too. So Naomi at NahumSiegel.com and please Esty Kafra, thank you very much for donating to, uh, all of our listeners. Um, you know, one, one of our listeners, one of your cookbooks. Um, another, Two more quick announcements. Um, live cooking demonstration done by myself, Naomi Nachman. Uh, talking about my third in the pe- third person. Um, it's a little weird. Okay, so um, come down to Borough Park this coming Monday. Uh, hopefully, you know, we'll have some nice weather, and the uh, it will be at Gourmet Glatt in Borough Park. I believe on, that's on Thirteenth Avenue. That is on Thirteenth Avenue. Um, at a from eleven thirty to two thirty. This Monday, okay, that's the third, fourth, this Monday's the fourth. I hope you'll all come down to uh, Gomeglat and you'll see me doing a cooking demonstration. Um, I'm going to be doing it at the Aussie's Fish Counter. Fish has been kind of like one of the things that I've worked on for years and years and years. I've been writing fish recipes for the Aussie's family um, and I will be doing some recipes there. You will get a tasting. Um, some brand new recipe cards um, and just a lot of fun. So come down. The store there is absolutely gorgeous. It's, you know, a, maybe less than two years old um, and it's really done beautifully and it's all very, you know, high-end and beautiful shopping and lots of fresh, fresh stuff. I always go in there when I visit my brother in Borough Park uh, to see what they've got uh, in the store and in the takeout department that uh, we can bring home to, to our family. But I'm sure that there's lots of things and lots of fresh produce and fresh fish and and uh, beautiful uh, sushi. I know they've got gorgeous sushi over there. So why don't everyone stop by uh, to see me uh, doing my cooking demonstration this Monday at 11.30 at the Borough Park store on 13th Avenue. Um, also, big, big news, very exciting news. Table for Two is having a supersized show by our sponsors, AHC Appliances, November 15th at 9 a.m., our regular showtime, but instead of being recorded live here on the Lower East Side, it's going to be recorded live on from AHC Appliances. And it's going to be a great show. It's actually, we're calling it a supersized show because it's from 9 to 10.30. So as soon as you you drop the kids off 
or the buses that pick the kids up, come on over to the five towns to AHC Appliances on Central Avenue. We've got giveaways. Joy of Kosher's Shifra Klein is going to be one of our guests, as well as the fabulous team from AHC themselves. We're going to learn how to use your ovens. People don't know what to do with their ovens. They don't know how to use it. They, it comes with all these little chuchkas, probes, uh, grill trays. People don't know what to do with it. I'm going to show you. We're going to make some great recipes. We're going to have uh, Jay Booksbaum there as well. Um, so uh, we're very excited to uh, – oh, Jay Booksbaum from Royal Wines, of course. Um, we'll be sharing some great wine tips as well in the store. Um, so it's going to be a great show. I hope that you'll come down. Please, if you don't live in the area and you think it's too far on a Friday morning, tell your relatives, your families. It's not too far from Queens. So uh, we hope to see you all there um, November 15th at 9 a.m., uh, and you can, I'll p- be putting up on my website some more details, the address, the time, some directions to make it easy for you to find us on that Friday morning. Okay, so this week was the trifecta of food conferences. It was crazy. I'm still like really tense from it all. My kids are well, like, are you going to be home at all this week? Um, it was Kosher Fest, Kosher Food Bloggers, and Kosher Feast, all in like a three-day period. It was amazing, amazing. My skirt is way too tight. We were very, very busy eating our way through New York and New Jersey this week. It was really wonderful. Uh, so let's let's do a recap of, um, you know, of each of the conferences. Um, Kosher Food Bloggers, there was, I don't know, like 50 people there. Uh, lunch was provided by... Um, Milk and Honey from Midtown. It was a delicious, fresh dairy lunch. It was dairy and parv. Salads and fish and quiches and parmesan. So thank you very much to them for donating and being one of the sponsors of the Food Bloggers Conference. It was run by the amazing Melinda Strauss. Uh, we got to network. We heard some great lecture, lectures on how to maximize our blogs and our websites and just a lot, a lot of networking um, and how to really just get out there, use social media and use Pinterest. For those of you who got into Pinterest, um, which is kind of like a collection. I know I always talk about it with Estee that I don't know how to use it. But my friend Sherry Marks, her daughter came over for Shabbat last week and showed me how to use Pinterest. It's kind of like you're pinning something on a notice board that's literally on the web that you create for yourself. So if I've posted a recipe and you can't find it three months later, if you've pinned it, you go to your pin board and then you find my recipe that you put aside and it will take you back. It's kind of like bookmarking the spot. So that was really interesting. And she said that's really that was one of the things I really walked away with um, from the from the food bloggers conferences. Get into Pinterest because it's you know the wave of the future of kosher social media, um, and I guess any uh, social media. But for me, it's always about the food and great recipes. Um, so that was really uh, very nice. Uh, that got us till four o'clock, and then at like four thirty, we started heading out slowly, making our way down to. Jay Soho um, for Kosher Feast, which was run by, by um, Primetime Parenting founder S.D. Berkowitz and Kosher Eyes, Roberta Schur. Um, they have fabulous websites, uh, koshereye.com and primetimeparenting.com. Um, R- Roberta's website is filled filled with great recipes. Um, S.D.'s is filled with great tips and families' ideas. She's been a guest on our show a lot. Um, so the dinner really was a get-together to have everybody in the same room, which is really nice, all the people in the food industry. And we actually paid homage to the Kosher Fest founder, Menachem Lubinsky. He was given an award. David Herzog, founder of the uh, California division. We, we know we, we had them on last week, the Herzog family, from the Herzog Wines, catapulting kosher wine into the worldwide market as well because it's not only kosher, it, it's fabulous that happens to be kosher. Uh, they gave cookbook pioneers, Susie Fishbein, Laura Frankel, Noreen Galette, Lavana Kirschenbaum, Joan Nathan and Gil Marks um, awards as well. Um, so that was really nice. It just really paying homage to them from the community within. And we had a great night, lots of wine. <laughs> so thank you to uh, Ken and Wines, uh, Royal Wines for uh, sponsoring that as well. Um, so after that, a bunch of us decided like a week before that maybe going back all the way to Manhattan then going back home to Long Island where we live and then back first thing in the morning to kosher 
fest might be a bit traumatic for us. You know, we thought, let's have a girls' convention at night, a, slip, a slumber party um, at, over at Kosher Fest. So a bunch of us uh, got some hotel rooms right next door to the convention centre at Kosher Fest, and we kind of like stayed up all not all night, but late into the night talking about food and then we went to sleep and the next thing we know, we just had to walk one block over to the Kosher Fest, which was absolutely wonderful because we're always, especially some of us coming from the other side of Manhattan, it was great when it was at the Javits Centre, but we were coming from um, Long Island. It's it's quite a big drive and then you have to drive home again at night. So I found like three hours of driving was a lot. So we all we all stayed over and we walked straight there. We were the first ones in the doors. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, Melinda Strauss and I, my friend and uh, colleague uh, from Kosher Food Bloggers, um, we walked around. We went to every single booth at Kosher Fest. Um, I just want to highlight um, some of the really, really interesting products and a few of the standouts that I really, really, really thought that will that were breakthroughs. Um, but first of all, we're getting out the Australian stuff right off the bat, okay? Anything Australian is always good. I went over to the Australian booth uh, where they have, like, different kosher products from Australia that are imported. I don't know if you know that corn thins, you know, those little thin corn thins that people eat all the time. They're actually Australian. But uh, the best product there, of course, at Kosher Feast, now probably all of you didn't get to try it if you were there at Kosher Fest, um, was Tim Tams. They're a chocolate-covered biscuit. I've definitely been mentioning them on my show for the last uh, how many years that I've been doing this for. Um, yeah, so uh, how many months I've been doing this for? I've been talking about Tim Tams a lot. <laughs> so um, it's a chocolate-covered biscuit. It's absolutely delicious. When I was growing up, they were not kosher. Since I left Australia, they've become kosher. Whenever, whenever someone goes to Australia, or you can actually get them in Israel, I make them bring me back some. So I have, now have a few packages that Rabbi... Um, uh, Aaron Groner bought for me, um, so thank you very much to him and Coast Australia for bringing those in for me. Um, and then the other product was uh, Solomon Soup Sippets. We call them soup nuts in America, but in Australia they call them soup sippets. You can actually now buy them in Gormegla and in some of the local kosher supermarkets in your neighbourhood. If you don't have them there, why don't you reach out to your manager of your supermarket and ask them. Southern Naomi Nachman said, these are the best soup nuts ever. So we'll give them a bit of a shout out. So that's, you know, the two Australian things I really, really wanted to plug because they're my favorite things from home. I used to sneak them in. I still sneak in in Tim Tams. But the uh, soup sippets, I used to bring like a half a suitcase back and now I don't have to because Gourmet Glatt has them. So thank you, Gourmet Glatt. Okay, now on to the real highlights of the tour of mine and Melinda's Kosher Fest. Uh, I'll walk up and down every single tasting that we could. Besides being lots of pickles, um, uh, we saw quite a lot of, I'd noticed a lot of change over the last 10, 15 years that I've been going. There used to be like a lot of herring, a lot of smoked salmon. I hardly saw any of those things, but there was a lot of beef jerky, a lot of tchina, a lot of hummus, a lot of meat products, which I thought was really great. So there was definitely maybe a shift in, you know, the, you know, we going from more traditional of smoked salmon and herring to something more funky. So that was, that's an, a trend that I had noticed. So some of the items I really enjoyed were Cole Foods meats, uh, an excellent meat product. It's actually fresh meats. Um, and they were actually, you, you can order them over the internet, I believe as well. And um, we're going to have them in on the show and talking about them in a couple of weeks, uh, talking about their, their products because I was very impressed with what I saw. Um, with their, with the quality of their meats. Um, they were searing up fresh silver tip, nice and rare. Looked like it was 135 degrees internally cooked, um, which was great. And they served it up with soom, S-O-O-M-S. That's a great tchina dip. Um, that they also were, um, had a booth there as well, but they had paired up and they had, um, done their soom tchina with this, um, delicious rare silver tip. It was amazing. So, um, that's number one on my list. I really, really enjoyed that. Another cool, this is the cool item that I saw, pizza cones. Really interesting. I'm going to put some of these pictures up on my Instagram page. Uh, if you want to find me, you can go to Naomi Nachman on Instagram. Um, pizza cones. Um, it was like a savory cone. It was a little thicker than an ice cream cone. And they made like a sauce with a cheese stuffing. And then they put it inside the cone and then they baked them off right there in the in, in the in the hall, in the room. It was amazing. Um, so that was definitely very cool. Hopefully coming to your supermarket very soon. 
Uh, RJ Beef Jerky out of Los Angeles, California. That was really good. They had some really nice dried sausages. Um, I like that a lot. Um, Finchy Dessert. Um, they were amazing Pesach chocolate mousse. They they um, got a um, an award for one of the for the best Pesach dessert. So um kavod to them. Kudos to you guys. It was really a delicious. And I'm not a big fan of par, but this is really delicious Pesach dessert. Another drink. The drink award goes to uh, the Bruce Co- Bruce Cost Ginger Ale. They had all these funky ginger ales. I couldn't get over it. You know, to me, ginger ale you always had when you had a bit of a bellyache. You know, they say ginger is very calming and soothing, and it is so, so true. Um, but they had these cool, like, ginger ale flavors, which, like, you might just want to have, um, you know, as a beverage on Shabbos. Um, they had really great flavors. They had a traditional ginger uh, ginger ale. They had a pomegranate and a passion fruit. So they were actually one of the um, – uh, also an award winner at the at, at Kosher Fest. Um, and then another big thing that I noticed, another winner uh, was, it's called Premier Tasty Meats out of Dallas, Texas. Um, they had they were searing up, um, cooking up, slow cooking up some brisket, which was delicious. He also won an award. But he also had these tangy beans going. It was delicious. I had like four of them, this in Heavy sauce, like barbecuey, smoky flavor going. I, had, I I just kept going back. I'm like, oh God, I cannot. You know, it's like flashing by, you know, one o'clock in the in the afternoon. But I couldn't stop myself. I, you know, every time I walked by their booth, grabbed another one. So that was really yummy. Um, so that's a uh, big congratulations to Jay Blake Blatstein on his delicious meats. There are sauces. I saw some nice sauces. I'm always looking for something different. Um, and I, I really love ethnic cooking and I really love Indian food. So they have um, a company called Tandoor. They had a spicy and tangy curry sauce and a tikka masala. So we're going to come back in a couple of weeks. We're going to visit that issue because th- th- that issue, those sauces, I should say, because they were absolutely fantastic. Um, so uh, we're look, looking out for those on our supermarket shelves. They also had caviar. Yes, caviar. I haven't seen that in a long time at Kosher Fest. They had had it in the past, um, but I hadn't seen any in a while. Um, and Satan, you know what Satan is? Satan is kind of like um, a, mm, I'm trying to describe it, a, um, hmm, good word. I'm tr- is it here? We, you know what? Who just walked in? My, my guest just walked in. I am very excited because he's going to be able to help me out because he is the master and the knowledge and the encyclopedia himself. Gil Marks has just walked into my studio. Hello, Gil. Thank Hello, you. Oh, thank you. And thank the New York Metropolitan Subway System for breaking down. <laughs> oh, no. I was actually really worried. I know it's a, a Friday morning is very difficult and a busy day for everyone. And uh, The one train um, decided to stall and it 40 minutes later. <laughs> okay, it's okay. You're here, but it's, it was actually good timing because I was actually Satan is actually. I was telling the viewers we're doing a bit of a recap on Kosher Fest, um, and we were talking about some of the great products. And I saw these Satan gyros. Now a gyro is traditionally, I believe, a Greek, a but sandwich wrap. It right? is, though. It's actually American. It's, really? Yeah, it's sort of um, take off from there, but you won't find it in Greece. It's 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 one of those. Things that it was inspired by the old country, but actually came to fruition here in the United States. The so, United States. Then, like so, like a pastrami sandwich, you you know they didn't really eat that in Poland, did they? they? Well, <laughs> it, or Romania, they had they had it was more like beef beef jerky. Uh, the soft kind is all. Uh, same with corned beef. <laughs> okay, all right. We can. Gil is literally a walking encyclopedia of food himself. Do you want to grab a water? No, I'm fine. Okay, there's a a, a, yeah, a, a water right in front of you, or I can get you. Uh, okay, it's been a very busy morning for us here in the studio, uh, and for Gil getting down here. Um, so they had these um, gyros, which uh, is some you know based from Greece, but it, it's really from from America. But they had these. Satan is uh, what did you say that was? It's a form of fermented tofu. So fermented tofu, but it's, it happens to be delicious. It's like eating steak. So uh, they put it in these gyros, these wraps, uh, with Israeli salad and hummus, and I thought that was delicious. 
So I just want to give them a mention. Uh, Carlos and Gabby's. We love Carlos and Gabby's in the five towns and in all the different, I think, I believe they're in Queens as well and in Flatbush. Um, and they have, they are now bottling their sauces. That was breaking news. Adam Kay was there very excited with all his different sauces and dressings. Um, so we look forward to seeing them on our supermarket shelf soon. And, um, one last thing. I, I tasted this earlier on in the show. There's a company called Simply Seven and they had pomegranate chips. It looked like a potato chips, but it had kind of like a bit of a pomegranate taste to it. So, I thought that was uh, actually delicious. So um, I just want to give them all those foods. They they were my standouts. Um, there were some truffles, uh, real truffles, like, I mean, chocolate, not the chocolate truffles, you know, the mushroom truffles. Gil can talk to us about that in a minute. Um, but uh, one more exciting piece of news that Manashevitz has got. I have an interview. I, I uh, recorded this yesterday. Uh, not yesterday, on when was the first day of Kosher Fest was Tuesday. So this was my very brief interview. It's the only interview I did uh, out there because I really wanted to get uh, Manashevitz on the air about this. Um, so um, I spoke with Alison Passar, and this is the interview that we did at, oh, sorry, Avital Passar. I apologize, Avital. Avital Passar from... Um, Manashevitz company and, and with breaking news that she was sharing with us. Hi, good morning. This is Naomi Nachman, host of Table for Two on the Nachum Siegel Network. I am actually at Kosher Fest and I am talking to the Manashevitz company and I'm talking with Avital Passar and she's going to tell us some really exciting news that Manashevitz has got going for us. Thank you so much. So exciting. One of the big programs we have right now is our Thanksgiving program. As you might be aware, Hanukkah and Thanksgiving are falling out on the same day this year. It's due to a calendar rarity. And with that, Manischewitz is engaging with consumers and we're trying to get as many insights and opinions and conversations going. So what we have done is we've created a microsite. You should check us out, thanksgivica.com with 1K. And on our microsite, you will be able to find our Thanksgivica holiday recipe competition. On the website, you can mash up any of your Hanukkah and Thanksgiving recipes, and you can put them together on the website. We are looking for fun, foodie ideas, anything that has a little latkes, a little turkey, cranberries. Have it as fun, different, creative, and we are excited to see what everybody has to offer. And what will be the grand prize? I love a good competition. Grand prize is cash. It's a thousand dollars. So we're going pretty big this year. Um, we are looking for anything fun, foodie, mashup and holiday theme. Well, we look forward. I'd, li- I'd like to follow up with you to see what the winner was and uh, we'll be in touch and share with our viewers and our listeners what, who was the big winner. And thank you so much for sharing this, your time with me today at Kosher Fest. Okay, thank you, Avital. You could hear the little buzz in the background, the excitement in the air. That was at the Manashevitz booth on uh, first day. That was like one of the first interviews, um, you know, first people that I spoke with there, and it was like like 10 past 10, and the room was already, the hall was already buzzing, buzzing, buzzing with people. You could move around a little bit until about 11 o'clock, and that's when it was a little hard to navigate your way through. But it was really a wonderful, wonderful um event for the industry. Thank you very much, Menachem Lubinsky, for putting on another amazing 25th year that you've been doing this amazing show. So I have in my studio now, we're going to move a little bit away from Kosher Fest. We can talk to Gil a little bit more about it uh, during our, our session together. Gil Marks, wow, thank you so much. Shari was here last week. Yes, hello. Thank you for having me. It's, a, uh, it's an honor and a pleasure. Um, you know, Gil, I just want to tell some of our listeners that Gil has got uh, several cookbooks. Five. 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 And one of them is a James Beard Award-winning cookbook. It's Olive Trees and Honey, which is traditional Jewish vegetarian from around the world. Uh, won the James Beard and had two nominations for the World of Jewish Cooking, which was my first baby. And <laughs> the latest uh, love child is an Encyclopedia of Jewish Food. Um, I, I just got that. <laughs> Which is a genuine encyclopedia. It looks like it's as thick as an encyclopedia. It's unbelievable. How long did that take? My whole life. 
because <laughs> uh, accumulation of everything. Uh, and partially what I did is when I got my first computer about 20 years ago, I just started um, collecting information, a recipe. And I would, if I saw a dish, a Tamani, a Yemenite dish, and I would try it until I got it the way I wanted and the recipe went in. If I found any information, it would go in there. So I collected a lot. And it took me from five years from when I walked into my editor's uh, office and we're talking about the next book. And she goes, you know what? You're a walking encyclopedia of food, so why don't you just write one? And I did. So it it was um, partially – much of what I did was just checking accuracy because so much of what we think about food is what we call bubba mices. That's so true. It's just – Tall tales. Tall tales. Totally wrong. Old old bubbies, old wives' tales. Um, and so, and particularly with the internet, the internet allows a um, tremendous amount of access to information, but much of it is wrong. So you have to spend, you know, go in and sometimes you get excited and you find something and you, and then when you check it out, there's, you, you realize, that, oh, you've, like, another Bubba Mice. Right. I thought gyros were Greek from uh, Greece. But that, yeah, that's one of the things. Um, and, and then, um, the, and part of it was, you know, clarifying. And part of it was cutting things down. You just have so much that we had to decide, you know, clip here, put there. And so it was, it, it was five years from when that point to when the book actually came out. Um, it's, it's unbelievable. I just want to tell people a little bit about your background and your bio. Then we're going to go into how you got started in all this. Uh, Gil, rabbi Gil Marks is a rabbi, a historian, is a chef and a social worker. He's a leading authority on culinary subjects in Jewish cuisine. Um, he's published, as he said, uh, five books, and he's been named one of the forwards. They call it they call it the forward newspaper, the forward fifty of the most influential Jewish Americans in 2010. And he's appeared in lots of different um, magazines and articles uh, across the United States and across the world in 1986. Uh, he combined. I, I did cooking demos in Australia. Did you? Yes. In oh, Melbourne. Yeah. In Melbourne. Okay. I'm from Sydney. Sydney. I don't know how long ago was that. Uh oh, it was four books ago. Four books ago. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's uh, like they talk about years and harvests at the winery. So you're talking about how many books ago? In 1986, uh, Gil combined his uh, interest in food, history, Judaism, and writing to become the founding editor of Kosher Gourmet Magazine, which a position he held for six years. So before there was Joy of Kosher and Batavon and Mishpacha, there was you. Before there was a Kosher Fest. I actually was the year before. That was a tremendous time, and that was what, you know, the Kosher Feast thing was sort of like, if you go back 25, 26 years, it's a totally different Kosher world. Right. Um, I was saying there used to be a Kosher Fest when I went the first time 15 years ago. There was a lot of herring. I did not see one bit of herring there today. No, and also 15 years ago, you would also would have seen a lot more of the major corporations. Uh, like? Um, Hershey's, Mars, um, oh. major corporations, because they were, they were at that point adopting in the processing of kosher becoming mainstreamed in all the products. Right. But now that's old hat. You really don't – it's not like – it used to be a kosher – oh, well, what major food went kosher? What major brand went kosher? But most of them, almost all of them have that could do it. You know, the, the meat companies, the non-kosher meat companies aren't going kosher. Right, right. Um, but the, now we have coal, coal, coal foods meats. Yeah. You can do certain things, but certain things, I mean, kosher ham is something that's not out there unless you, I always get, um, bacon, at, bacon. At some of the show. No, the marzipan pigs with the uh. OU on it. So I take it to the nieces and nephews and kids and they love the kosher pigs with the OU on it, which is marzipan, which is almond paste. Um, but besides that, that's as close you're going to get. But you're talking out in America, probably more than half of all the national produced items have, are kosher supervised these days. Right. And um, so uh, let me just ask a question. Okay. Gil, what do you Gil's th- asking me questions. What Great. do you think is the first product in history to uh, and when to have co- rabbinical cert- certification? Okay, in the United States? Anywhere. Okay. Oh, God. <laughs> no, I don't know. I have. I can't okay. even start to think. The year was 1870. Okay. And the first product was soap. 
No way. So who was the who was the rabbinical authority that gave that? Okay, the Gadol Hador. Let's let's uh, let's do a little brief history okay, of kosher. This, and this why this is why Gil Marx is here, and who who that's why he is who he is. You have to understand. First of all, soap is a relatively new invention. People were dirty throughout most of history. And not to mention smelly. And which is why perfume came about. But if you remember the Greeks, they didn't have – before they went to the baths, they put olive oil on and then scraped it off, and they, they didn't have soap. That's was their soap is olive oil? Yeah, well, sort of. That was – they put it on, and they would scrape it. They had special, like, windshield wiper things that scraped off the oil. They would take the dirt off, and then they went into the baths. Uh, but they – what happened was the – the Arabs in the medieval period invented, uh, discovered alkalines, which is actually any al or algebra are all Arabic words, um, and it gradually makes its way into Europe. And what happens is, if you, and anybody who's ever baked and put too much baking soda in, you know what, ha- and you don't have enough acid to react to it, you get a soapy taste. Yeah. So that's a, the alkaline in conjunction with the fat produces soap. So how do they make soap? With lard. Um, and they would take the lard, mix in the uh, alkaline, uh, potash, uh, and, and out of that came soap, uh, which obviously could not use in a kosher kitchen. Of course not. Because it's lard. Uh, lard. Lard is pig fat for those listeners who aren't familiar with it. Yes, very unkosher. <laughs> so in uh, can't get too much more unkosher. Then you so in 1870, a man by the name of uh, Yisrael Israel Rokeach. Oh my who, God! Whose name you that's might? That's a household name. Who you might? They, yes. I think they pronounce it Rokeach, the company now. Rokeach, but in, yeah. In Europe, it was Rokeach. Rokeach, yeah. Um, uh, was from Poland, moved to uh, Kovno, Lithuania. And he went to a rabbi who was the Gadol Hador, the great rabbi of the time. His name was Yitzchak Hochanan. And he's, like as in Yeshiva University. Yes, precisely. The one and the same. The, that's who the, I, I have speaker from that institution. Was named after rabbi. He was like the big rabbi of the of the at 1870 at that time. And he said, "I had this idea of of using technology to create um, a par of kosher soap." So it's the first time uh, in history also that technology and science was used in the pursuance of kosher. And, he's, and Rabbi uh, uh, Yitzhak Ochanan said, you know, it's a great idea. I have one uh, major problem with it. How, if you do this, can you tell the kosher soap from the non-kosher soap? And how can you tell if you use the kosher soap, say, with uh, meat items – that it doesn't get used with dairy items and vice versa. So he thought about it for a little, and he came up with an ingenious idea that everybody knows today because we use it. He wrote the word kosher in red for the meat soap and to show that it's kosher, and kosher in blue, which is why to this day most kosher kitchens will have red and red for, for the, the meat and blue for the dairy. And he said, Great, and he gave him certification on it, and it took over. Ten years later, because of the pogroms um, after the assassination of of Tsar Alexander, the government-induced pogroms that induced my ancestors, my father's family from Romania to leave and come to America, um, a lot of people began leaving Eastern Europe, uh, including the Rokeach family, and relocated here to America, started the company, and built from soap to other Kosher products, products yeah. and it still exists today, but that was the first one. Um, because until that time, and relatively well into the 20th century, um, we had kosher, but we have to know that first of all, throughout most of history, people didn't buy too many processed foods. Um, you made them at home. And even say flour, most, what, what a lot of people did, they would buy their own sacks of wheat berries every year, and then they would take it to the mill and have it ground. So you didn't even, so the concept of buying processed foods develops in history, and that's when kosher is really needed. And it, even at the beginning, they didn't, um, uh, there were certain companies that aimed for the, for the Jewish market for their taste and needs, uh, and, but without any kind of certification because it wasn't um, – uh, you either accepted the family. You didn't so say example. In, in, I believe it was 1930, um, Tilly Golden uh, – uh, Tilly Gold and her husband Hyman um, 
they kind of bailed out a relative in a tight spot. Okay. And the, and he had no, the relative had no money. All he had was a grinding machine. So he gave them this grinding machine. And you're in the midst of the depression. He said, what do you do with the grinding machine? Until he had the great idea, um, well, I hate grinding horseradish. Uh, no way. I know where this is going. And so she, <laughs> she said, well, let's grind it and we'll put it in bottles and try to sell it. And they did. And, and in gold, the depression, they became rich. No, at, well, <laughs> at they, it takes a while, you know. You, right. Uh, uh, part of being an entrepreneur is uh, you can't necessarily expect immediate, but and, and it's a struggle often. But after a few years of struggle, the, and they're still in existence, they were at the kosher yeah, fest. Yeah, absolutely. I and they've it. been in most of the kosher with kosher supervision yeah. now. But they start; they didn't have it at the beginning, right? That, because it was like every, whether it was Manischewitz matzah. Why? What? In eighteen eighty six. Aha, here's one. You're talking Manischewitz. Okay, Manischewitz. We love what's, Manischewitz. What's his real name? His real name was Abramson. He was a Lithuanian Jew. He was trying – there's different stories. Most of them probably like many of my ancestors trying to get away from the Russian draft, which was not a pleasant experience, spending 25 years in a horrible anti-Semitic situation. Um, so he bought a dead man's passport whose name happened to be Dovbear Manischewitz. Um, ends up in Cincinnati with the name Dovbear Manischewitz. And in 1886, how do you get a matzah? You either make, make your own yeah. or find somebody who does. And that's what he did. He started making, making his matzahs. own matzah. I thought he was actually from the Lower East Side. No. No, he, he, no, he was Cincinnati. Cincinnati. Okay. You had some of the other ones, Strites. Strites, um, yeah. Strites was the Lower East Side. Uh, Horace Margaretten, I believe, and then you had Baltimore was a scene. They had certain ones. So, but were, they were later, but he was, he actually made it and then he kept expanding. And at first, and there was a period there where he actually, uh, Manischewitz was not making matzah kosher for Passover. So who was he making matzah for? I don't know. Aha. So what, where's Cincinnati is one of the last stopping points before heading west. Okay. So pioneers heading west would, would, coming through Cincinnati would load up on food that would last for a long time. Oh. So you're in a covered wagon. For the cowboys. For the cowboys. For, well, pre-cowboys. Pre-cowboys. For the pioneers, yeah. Um, you know, being stuck in a rut meant that the, the wagons the wheels would stick, would go, would dig these big ruts in the road. Yeah. And so uh, on your way there, sometimes if the rut got rainy and muddy, you could get stuck in a rut. And, oh, and, stuck in a rut, huh? Oh, and it's unbelievable. Uh, and uh, oh, I'm a master of trivia. Oh, I love uh, that. I love hearing <laughs> trivia. I love it, especially food trivia. And, and everything. So, and but so this trivia is. That um, so the pioneer you you can't take bread bread was yeah, mold and, yeah and they didn't even have any of the um, the chemicals in their thing even flour can spoil for quick but yeah. anybody who knows matzah knows matzah keeps matzah keeps on keeping on <laughs> so they would so non-Jewish pioneers would buy matzah to take west so matzah helped build America yay. Go uh, but anyways, but again, they didn't have initially kosher super certification. None of the companies did. That all be changed, if I might give another point in history. Was okay, it, and then we're going to hit you up with some questions. And then you can be, 1925. Okay. What happened in 1925 was Heinz, yeah. H.L. Heinz Company, had, which previously had a product of pork and beans, Wanted to do a vegetarian version. Okay. Now, uh, ah, another interesting point is Boston baked beans, they got from the Jews. Boston baked beans came from Jews. Baked okay. beans come from Let's the Jews. Let's come back to that. Um, what happened, the pilgrims did not come directly to America from England. They went to Holland first. Mm-hmm. They spent a dozen years in Holland. Now, there were no uh, blatant Jews in Holland at that time. Um it wasn't until Cromwell that Jews were officially allowed back. Uh, but So they were in Holland, and they had all these Sephardic Jews there. That And the pilgrims kept Sunday as a sort of, of Shabbat, as a day of rest, so they didn't do certain things. Um, and they saw the Jew, the Sephardim, making all these exotic dishes, like the Cholent-type dishes or Chamin-type dishes, including one called Shachna, which is a form of Chamin, which is baked beans with goose fat and honey. That sounds actually sounds good. 
And it, oh, it is. As far as I didn't know how to cook. Oh, I know that. I mean, um, even in Spain, where they had great, uh, Muslim cooks, the Sfardim were recognized as being the best cooks. Oh, absolutely. Unbelievable. I love Sfardi restaurants. Uh, I, oh, I just, uh, anytime I get, um, uh, well, you live in Israel now. You're so lucky. I do. I get to, whenever I, um, but I love Mizrahi. I love the Eastern foods. I just love exploring we food. Just, we just love food. Come food. on, Gil. We don't care if it's Well, I love Eastern good food. Stuff. Good food, yeah. Not bad food. I've unfortunately eaten in a few kosher restaurants in, in New York in the past couple of days. Uh, and was a little bit disappointed, to say at least, in many of them. Uh, but yeah. that's a whole other topic. Yeah, we'll say but that getting for back time. to the baking. So the, the pilgrims come to America with some of these dishes. What do they do? Um, you don't have goose fat. No. So they substituted pork. Okay. They don't have um, uh, honey in America. The honey bees were brought, what we know, were brought by the Europeans uh, later to North America. So what? Did, so they substitute either maple syrup or rum, or not rum, molasses or something. Okay. And stuck in the oven on Saturday and Sunday morning after church had Boston baked beans, or, or and that's the source of it. So you, it comes from a co- Jewish source to, to really trave uh, pork and beans, and then in 1925, as Heinz is a, and and as I this. What was Heinz's first product, variety product? I don't want to say ketchup because nope. I'm probably wrong. Much later. Okay, shoot. Horseradish. Oh, no way, really? I don't see that anymore. He, there was a German, non-German Jewish family, but they also had horseradish. Okay, interesting that it branched so out. It, and they branched out there just as Gold's branched out. out here. Very and nice. And now we got borscht and everything else and, and many other products that they have. Uh, even wasabi, they have wasabi, wasabi uh, mayonnaise uh, now, mayonnaise yeah, and stuff, yeah, yeah. which it's, is very un-Polish. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah it's yeah, all yeah. the fusion cooking as the world is shrinking. Japanese with European ends up on the Jewish plate on Friday night. So, yeah. Gil, I've got some questions. And, oh, oh, just oh, no, one question. Let me finish that up. Yeah, let me finish that up. Story. Yep. So, with the vegetarian thing, so. Um, this was the first national product in America, particularly of a non-Jewish corporation, to get rabbinic certification. And they didn't know what to do, so they got the OU, the Orthodox Union, got together with an advertising agency and Heinz. And Heinz said, you know, we really don't want to put the word kosher on the label. Because this was 25. This was – Father Coughlin was still on the radio with the most vile anti-Semitism coming out. It was a very different America. Um uh, this was before Molly Goldberg and Gertrude Berg introduced Jews and Jewish food to the uh, to the mass mar- uh, to the mainstream America. Um, so what they did, they came up with the OU symbol uh-huh. for this product in particular and stuck it on, and that was the first one. That was the birth of the entire uh, Jew- uh, certification kosher certification. And now we've industry. got so many different organizations, which we saw a lot of them uh, yeah. at Kosher Vest. Okay, Gil, I've got to fire away some questions at you about food, okay? For starters, a little bit about you. How old were you, you when you got into this? Like, what got you into this? Very briefly. <laughs> well, my mother claims all the credit. She goes, when I was when I was a little boy, I would complain about her food. He says, if you don't like my what I make, make your own. Uh, and and I so did. he did. I, I tell that to my kids. So my kids make really good noodles, cheese, and sauce. Okay, um, people, uh, baking or cooking? People ask me that Everything. all the time. Okay, I always say cooking. I, I like to cook more than bake. I, everything. I'm now doing. There's a there's a website called thehistorykitchen.com. I do a monthly American Cakes column. Oh, nice. Um, where each month I do the history and the culture. So everybody, you should go. See, it's it's a fun thing and it's, it's fascinating. So for give me. our listeners, give our listeners that website again. Thehistorykitchen.com. Okay, and look up uh, Gil Marx's hist- historical. Just Boston cream pie this I last month. I saw that, month. and Tori, Tori had Tori, it on. Uh, yeah. Oh, com yes. had it on her website as well. well. Well, she did it, but this is her non-Jewish website because it's a history one. And I'm doing carrot cake next oh, uh, yum. Uh, for the next month. Okay, so now we've got Hanukkah coming up, okay? Can you give us a little historical... Uh, tour of how latkes and donuts and sufganiyot and the difference between a latka and a sufganiyah because apparently there is a difference. Oh, a major difference. A major difference. So I thought, who better to share this with us in this uh, historical journey with us of the uh, oil cooked food <laughs> uh, with Gil? So, so um, 
Well, okay. let's begin that um, uh, Judah Maccabee never saw potato or a latke. That's uh, <laughs> a misnomer um, in, in all of those senses. The the basic thing with pancakes. Let, let's go. The uh, let's say the whole thing with the connection of frying and oil and stuff is around the 1500s. It's relatively late that this these customs begin emerging. Really? Because you know it's not from like the times of way back. No, no. So interesting. So who thought of that one? Um, the first mention of it, there's a Sephardic rabbi, Rabbi Nissan uh, uh, Ben uh, Ruvain, who's the Ron. Who, if you're in yeshiva, you always—he's one of the guys in the back, the Ron, <laughs> who's from Grino, Grino, uh, Genoa, uh, uh, Garona, sorry, Garona, uh, around the year 1360. So you're talking very late in history. Um, this is post-Crusades um, time. Uh, so 1360 is the first mention of the association of dairy products with Hanukkah. Okay, like cheese latkes. Like cheese, um, and um, and then we uh, we get the apocryphal association with uh, the Book of Judith and the whole thing of that comes after that point, um, and uh, the first mention of pancakes is in a, an Italian source, Colonimus and Colonimus, um, around the same time or shortly earlier than that. Um, so you have in the uh, – so you're talking the 1300s, these customs start emerging and spreading as Judaism and Jewish foods develop. And what seems to have happened is it, the concept of the pancake, as I said, it begins in Italy, and, and it's fried in olive oil because uh, olive oil is very cheap there. Uh, not, um, so, not so cheap now and – the 21st century. And when and and Jews from uh, Sicily introduced the concept of ricotta cheese to them, to, to Italian Jews, and they begin making uh, a very popular form of cheese pancakes, which start heading north. Now, when it, it reaches the Ukraine, it it's um, it's called in in Ukrainian. Oladka, which is diminutive form of Slavic form of Ola, meaning basically little oilies. It's from the the Latin um, and um, and Italian word for olive oil. So latka means a little oily, basically. A little oily. Oily. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. So what what do they call them in Hebrew again? Uh, levivot. Levivot. Okay. Which is an which is a, a Talmudic term. Okay. Um, you find that in, in Tanakh um, in, in the story Levivot, but they're certainly not the modern things, modern type of pancakes that we're we're talking about. Um, so it makes its way there, and it the, the linguistically begins to change, but it comes from from the Latin and Italian for olive oil. But you have several problems that you have north. One of which there's no olive oil uh, or olive trees, and so what kind of fat do you fry in in Poland? Animal fat. Schmaltz. Schmaltz. Yeah, schmaltz. Ah, I got it right. Woo. It's it's not. You can't fry a cheese latka, cheese pancake in schmaltz. No. So even though they do, uh, you could do it a little bit in butter. So, but that's expensive, particularly that time of year. Yeah. So you have a little bit of cheese pancakes in Poland, but primarily it shifts over to like rye and, and Bellini type things. Okay, which is like a mini blend. And then buckwheat. When buckwheat comes in around 1500, the you have the buckwheat pancakes, and then what happens is, yes, the potato pancake is very late. It's only in around 1838 to 1840. There's several years of famine and crop problem failures in Ukraine and in Poland, and it's at that point that Eastern European Jews, particularly Polish Jews, start eating pancake uh, uh, potatoes. potatoes on a regular basis, and that the potato pa- uh, pa- the potato latka, the potato kugel, the potato in the cholent, no, no, all the potato dishes come in at that point. Yapsik. 
people always asking me the history of Yapsik. I know I'm interjecting. Do you have a quick one-minute history on Yapsik or Yapchik? I know what you're talking about. I and, make it, and, and I'm not sure. I think that's a, uh, I'm famous for my Yapsik, and now, I don't know the history. there's certain Polish Jews claim that they made it in Poland. I've never found a source. I can't find one, for Gil. Anywhere for the dish. I think it's one of those, you know, lapse memory things. That actually it's an American innovation. Um, that somebody in America probably post-World War II began doing it. You find this it's a Hungarian, lot. Hungarian, by in, Hungarians. Uh, Jews. Yeah, you find this a lot in, um, in, um, in, in all food things. Where, oh yeah, um, devil's food cake. We made devil's food cake in, my, I remember my grandmother made devil's food cake in 1880. You, you find people saying that. And we know it's not true. Right. But, you know, that we have these food memories that we cook because, oh, yeah, your mother probably made it. And she said, well, my mother made it. But they, it's not uh, – I mean, it might be, but I think it's an American – like, I think it's American innovation. The Yapsik, I have yes. tried researching it because it's one of my specialties. People love my Yapsik. I've been on Miriam Wallach's show, That's Life. Um, right. And we talk about Yapsik, and people are always asking for my recipes. It's wintertime. It's getting cold. Yapsik is a great alternative to Cholent or in addition to Cholent, as we do in our family, and I've got no history on it. Right. I once wrote somewhere. Um, and it's not that, in your I book. Just told, no, it's not. I, looked it up. I actually, there's a couple of things that aren't in the books, one of which is that, one of which is cheese doodles, which I discovered, yes, cheese doodles is a Jewish food because a Sephardic Jew by the name of Mori Yochoi invented cheese doodles. Um, but, you know, there's many different things that I discover because I keep discovering things. And Yapchik... Um, is not here, and maybe someday if if I ever get that uh, get to do a revision, uh, mm-hmm. a, a new you know a new edition, I'll I'll put those things in because I've I discovered different things since then. Okay, so we have divi- diverged from the potato, so let's go but, back but, to but our potato. But anyway, but the object, uh, um, uh, somebody wrote and I wrote somewhere that my theory that it's, it's probably because I have and he well I uh, my mother claims that they made it back in Europe. And it very well could be, but again, I think that's just one of those memory things. Right, that right. Be, uh, but I think that's a post-World War II American innovation right. on, on on potato kugel and and stuff. Because what you the other thing is, they rarely cooked with meat, particularly in right, Poland. Right, or stuff. They, they didn't, didn't have, have it. it. It was expensive. They didn't have it. If you look at the Cholent, the Cholent things in the pictures are like little small containers, and they if you put Put a little piece of fat or bone or something in it. That made that. Was yeah, they it. didn't have big pieces of flank and that I put in my challenge. Yeah, well, it's not like the, people ate, made, ate mainly vegetarian, which was all the trees and honey book was about. Is what people really ate in those days. Right. And if you stuck, I mean, you rarely even fish for some people could be expensive. And, and sometimes people took a filter fish, they would get the skins for free and stuff it with bread, and that was their gefilte fish. Um, as close as they got because they couldn't afford anything else because there were a lot of impoverished people. And, and those people who could eat meat or even chick, they didn't even have chicken necessarily that much on like a, on a weekly basis as much. Um, so Okay, so, so let's – you know, Gil could talk for a long time yes. about food because, number one, we're both so passionate about food and the history of food. But unfortunately, our hour is not almost up, but we're, we're getting close to it. So let's come back to the potato laka. Just tell yeah. me what's the best kind of potato to use for a potato laka. Um, I uh, generally you kind of you want to use what's called a boiling potato, the kind you do for um, um, uh, the potato salads and stuff. It's okay. a little less starchy um, and will will we'll fry up a little bit crisper for you. And the secret, yeah, give us some is, secrets. Fried in oil and plenty of it. Woohoo! Um, uh, and my, good salt and good salt. One of my sisters once tried to make him with Pam. With, uh, and she said, you know what? Not only kids wouldn't eat it, I wouldn't eat it. Um, <laughs> you got to splurge a little bit. Same thing with uh, Sufgani Oat with yes, donuts. Yes, let's talk about Sufgani Oat and donuts. Yeah. Uh, well, donuts um, um, are uh, – He doesn't seem like he loves them. Oh, I love them. Oh, okay, Every good. year I have a Sufgani Oat party for the family, and I make hundreds of Sufgani Oat. I'm coming up. I'm coming. And uh, this year it's in Israel. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll come. 
Okay, I had it in Brooklyn the last number of years, but I'm going to be in Israel for Hanukkah this year. I was there last year for Hanukkah. I saw every and, kind of donut under the sun. And you're invited. So I make my own pastry cream for the filling, and we do jelly, and we do bear claws, and we do mm. uh, glaze, and ev- oh, we do all kinds, and everybody walks away um, with plenty of good donuts because nothing like a donut fresh out of the oil. Oh, I make mine stuffed with Oreos inside. Uh, yeah, that's good. A double and dessert. Last year they decided that some of the nie- uh, nieces wanted the dolce de leche, the oh, caramel yeah, one. Oh yeah, caramel, love them. So em. I did a dolce de leche filling for the uh, uh, caramel filling. But the thing is, um, you found a little bit. The uh, non-Jews use donuts and jelly-filled sup donuts for certain things in Poland. So there were a few Polish Jewish communities that adopted early on called ponchiks. In, oh, yes. And in Australia, they're still called ponchos. Yeah, my grandmother used to call them Because that. in Australia, is prim- primarily Polish, Polish Jews who yep. settled it. That's me. And and so it's not called jelly donut or sufganiya. It's called ponchiks because that's what the Polish Jews called them. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, But it wasn't that th- um, popular. Um, it was sort of popular, but it's harder to make than many things. So more people made uh, latkes in. in in 20th century Israel in the beginning of the 20th century the Hisadrut the, the labor union was trying to find work for their people now latkes is no work because anybody can make it at home it's more people are intimidated by a jelly donut so they they took the jelly these ponchik this limited Polish food and called it sufganiyot after a Talmudic uh, form of dough um, and popularized because you could have uh, a couple of weeks of work with making them and shipping them and selling them. And to today, today in Israel too, you see they they start springing up in all the right. every place. And, and the Moroccans make something called sfinge. Sfinge is a Moroccan form of donut, but it's not a jelly donut. Right. And it's it's what the difference is that real sfinge has no egg in it. Right. And the egg yolk is what keeps. Uh, helps to keep the oil from absorbing in there. So the modern donut comes about when egg, when the egg yolk in particular gets into the dough, which is a around the 1600s in Europe, in, in Western Europe, Germany or, or Holland, depending what. I am so hungry for a donut right now. <laughs> we have to go to Midtown to get Krispy Kreme. I love Krispy Kreme donuts. And there's also La Churro. Have you ever had a churro? I made churros. Go up and here made... on, on Lexington Avenue in like the 70s or 80s. There's a kosher one now, La Churro. I put it on Facebook, my Facebook page. People have been going nuts over it. And I, that's Friday. You know, I've done some making... cooking demos of, of Spanish food where I mm. did, for dessert we did churros with the chocolate dipping sauce. So that's a different, if you're looking something different to do for your family, you know, make some churros. So They're can... not that hard. You just, uh, just squeeze it out of a pastry bag right. with a tip and, and it's very easy. And, uh, and lots of oil. And lots the oil is, if you don't have the oil. Don't bother. Don't bother. <laughs> well, yeah, no, it's true. It's true. Yeah. And make sure, a little cooking tip if I can share with everyone, the oil temperature should be, get a thermometer, 360, 50. A three, a three, start at 370. It will go down when you put it in. Don't let it go below 350. If it goes below 350, it it's absorbs. The oil. So, you know, people go, oh, oh, oh cooking oil so fattening. But um, if you monitor your oil and you kind of have to babysit oil um, while it's cooked, the, the deep fry, while you're deep frying, then, you know, it's, it's really something delicious. We're, we're, we're all ready to we're all ready to eat. Um, Gil, you've got some very exciting news with Susie Fishbein. Yes, we got to wrap up in about a minute and a half. So yes. just tell us quickly. My latest news is there's a magazine called Zaman Magazine, Z M A M. It's a wonderful thing, and they're starting a food section. And Susie Fishbein and I are com- collaborating. What a great team! I cannot think of any two people I'd rather read. And we spent last night uh, discussing the next couple of years of potential. It comes out monthly uh, of things that we want to do, and we just have so many things we'd love to do. The question is which one's first. It's so exciting. And when is it going to be available? We're going to start sometime in the winter coming up, uh, either January or February, uh, issue of Zaman Magazine. We're going to start, and we'll be in there monthly, and we'll do, we'll have, 
a little bit serious with the historical, cultural aspect of food. And a great recipe. And great recipes and pictures. Oh, amazing. I cannot wait to look, looking forward to seeing that, so look for it soon. Remember this Monday, I'm going to be in Gourmet Glut in Borough Park at 11.30 to 2.30 doing a cooking demonstration at the Aussie's Fish, Fish Counter inside of the Gourmet Glut Emporium in Borough Park. Thank you very much for listening. Our show has been uh, sponsored by AHC Appliances. We've got music all the way up to Lichtbenching with our friends at Ken & Wines. Shabbat shalom and happy cooking.